0: Please open to Romans chapter 8. This morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 17. Again, Romans 8, verses 1 through 17. Uh, If you've received the newsletter, um, you know that we are kind of uh, backtracking a little bit in our study in Romans. Uh, I kind of wanted to reset the uh, context behind our normal expository preaching uh, through Romans so we're technically about midway through Romans chapter 9 but in order to really understand Romans 9 I mean really you have to understand all of the first eight chapters but really Romans 8 kind of sets that foundation for Romans chapter 9 and so uh, this Sunday and next uh, we're going to look at a quite a big chunk of Romans so we're really doing a a kind of a once-over review of Romans before we dive back into uh, chapter 9. So again, Romans uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Hear now God's holy and inerrant word. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds to the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but Through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. in order that we may also be glorified with him." This is God's word. As many of you uh, know or remember, uh, after we left Germany, we spent another uh, roughly three months in Scotland as part of uh, an additional internship Uh, with the International Presbyterian Church uh, in Larbert, Scotland. And I think one of the main highlights of the trip, uh, if any of you uh, know anything about me or now you're about to learn something about me, uh, is that uh, Sinclair Ferguson is probably my favorite uh, theologian and pastor. And so the church we were at had a 10-year anniversary and they had Sinclair Ferguson in the flesh Uh, Teach uh, during the weekend uh, that they had. And uh, he taught on union with Christ. Uh, Many of you are probably familiar with Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, He spent some time in the U.S. He kind of teaches at Reformed Theological Seminary from time to time. He's on uh, through Ligonier Ministries uh, and has ministered much of his life uh, to uh, many people around the world. And he noted that our union with Christ is not just a concept uh, devout to students of theology or doctorate uh, uh, graduates, uh, but it's very practical, Uh, the practical side of our union with Christ and how we ought to live in light of that great truth. And so, in this passage, we really get the the glimpse of what it means to be in Christ, our union with Christ. Paul uses this all throughout Romans eight, how we are united with Christ and the importance of it, because we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. We live and die, we breathe everything Christ like. And so. <clears throat> If you recall the overview, the kind of overflow of Romans, the general uh, argument that Paul has in mind and the importance of this union with Christ. In Romans 1, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith just as it is written in quoting Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith alone. He's reminding us that we are declared righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on our behalf. And how is this base? What is the basis for our justification? It is faith. It is by faith that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, in something. Not by faith in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ himself. And from there on, Paul weaves in and out this concept. He says, we are, we are all dead in our sins and trespasses. He lays forth in Romans 1 the, the great resume, if you will, of what sin is and what it does to us. Yet Paul doesn't leave us in this state of "there's there's nothing there's nothing there's no hope there's no salvation in anything." He reminds us that just as Abraham was justified by faith, so also we, as believers, if you are in Christ, you are also justified by faith. He says in Romans four twenty five. Yet now, if you are here, it is in Christ. You are united in the second Adam and receive newness of life in the forgiveness of sins. You are no longer in Adam who brought about death through his first sin in the garden. You are now in Christ who conquered death. Again, it is that union with Christ, that union that cannot be broken. And now in the present text, Paul has transitioned from his major arguments in Romans 6, in Romans 7, regarding our sinful nature and how uh, concepts such as adoption, such as being saved, salvation, again, our union with Christ are at the forefront of our being, at the forefront of Christian living. And our union with Christ, and he makes this point quite clear, isn't anything because we have done, it's not because of some foreseen goodness that he will see in the future, but it rests solely on what Christ has done in going to the cross on our behalf. And so what I'd press upon you this morning is to cherish your union with Christ because of what he has done on your behalf. We'll be looking at this in three ways. First, uh, freedom from sin's bondage. In verses 1 through 8. Let me read it again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How? By sending his own Son. The culmination of Paul's argument really comes to its point, its apex here in Romans chapter 8. If you were wondering at any moment in reading the first seven chapters if sin could condemn you, Paul explains the opposite if you are in Christ Jesus. Yet take note the key is that only those who are in Christ are the ones who are free from the bondage of sin. One of the most beautiful verses in the Bible is Romans 8, chapter 1. And we could spend many sermons, an entire month, just on how robust this verse is. But Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Using both therefore and now is is emphasis here on the text. It's emphatic. Paul is highlighting a very important point. And it's the fact that now in the present, There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And the therefore is establishing back to the points that Paul has made. Although you are condemned under the law because you are not perfect, you are not the son of God, you stand under his condemnation. But now, therefore, because of what Christ has done on your behalf, you are free from such condemnation. We see throughout Romans, Paul is picking up on the same theme through chapter 6 and 7. He's restating the assurance of the message in Romans five twelve through 21, that we are no longer in Adam, but we are in Christ. We're not in the sinful Adam who brought about death, but we are in Christ Jesus, who is perfect, who has brought forth life. And that because of this, the work of Christ is completely sufficient for us. Completely sufficient for salvation and for godly living. So what's the content of this message? What are we being saved from? Paul tells us condemnation from the law of sin and death. The condemnation has a judicial sense. It's like a judge who pronounces a sentence against a guilty person. We, prior to being in Christ, are condemned. The judge has smacked his gavel and said, you are guilty for all your sins. You you are born in Adam. There's not one day that you have been cleared of sin. You are by nature children of wrath. But Paul says, if you're in Christ, Christ has paid for that condemnation. God himself has smacked the gavel on Christ, the perfect mediator of the covenant, the perfect person, both God and man, who came and lived a sinful life. So because of what Jesus has done, not because of what you have done, you are no longer condemned. You no longer stand guilty in the sight of God. But there's a caveat to that. there's, There's the opposite effect to that, And Paul really bounces back and forth from these two concepts. I would encourage you to print off uh, this passage and circle in different colors where Paul says the benefits of being in Christ and, and the punishment of being in the flesh. Paul bounces back and forth. If you're in Christ's life, if you're in the flesh, death. And so if you are in the flesh still, you are still under that condemnation. Christ has not set you free if you are still living according to your own nature, your own desires, your own sins. Yet at the same time, he says, if you're in the spirit, if you have the seal of righteousness based upon the perfect work of Christ... You are free from the law's demands. The law has no more burden upon you because Christ Jesus has paid it on your behalf. So the content that we're free from is condemnation. What is the means? How are we actually freed from it? The common Sunday school answer is Jesus. Jesus Christ himself is the means by which this is accomplished. Again, this is broken up throughout the passage. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in Jesus Christ, in the Son of God, in the Spirit. All of these building to this climax that if you are in Christ, you are free from sin, from death. Why? Because it is Christ Jesus himself who has set you free. It is God himself who has set you free. And how did he do this? He became Flesh, he he took upon himself a human nature. He humbled himself, as Paul says in Philippians, to the point of death on a cross. We could not accomplish such a glorious redemption by ourselves. There, there are no amount of lifetimes we could be gifted to redeem ourselves. Even if you spent your next lifetime, all the knowledge that you have, apart from Christ, you couldn't work yourself up to heaven. We need a mediator. We need a perfect redeemer to pay the penalty on our behalf, which is Jesus Christ himself who did it on the cross. Again, that's why Paul puts this exclamation point on verse 1, saying, because of this, because of what I explained to you previously, and because of what I'm going to continue to explain to you, there is right now no condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. So if you're in Christ, what are the benefits? What's the result? You get life and you get peace. Right? This isn't to say that you get life insofar as you will never die because we will still die, but you get something more than just mere life on this earth. You get life in terms of being raised again from the dead when our mortal bodies will put on the imperishable. Again, because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Not only are you given life, but you're given peace as well. Peace with God. You're no longer an enemy with God. You're no longer at war with the creator of the heavens and the earth. You are given peace with God. We have entered into what the Hebrews would say is the true shalom, the true peace the peace that they have always been longing for and we will see this come to a climax in the new heavens in the new earth when the new jerusalem comes down from heaven the true city of peace where we will dwell again with the triune god we will see him face to face but there's a contrast as well isn't there Paul doesn't just talk about those who are in Christ Jesus, but he also talks about those who are in the flesh. If you are still in the flesh, you are not perfectly. No. No one can. No one is able. What does Paul say? We, we have all sinned. There is no one who is righteous. All have sinned. All people, without exception, have sinned and fallen short Of the glory of God. Why is this important? Because the wages of sin is death. So if you are in the flesh, you don't get life and peace. You remain in the state that you are in, dead. You sit under the condemnation of He who created all things that you can see, that you can smell, that you can touch. You stand under his condemnation. Yet, at the same time, there's still hope if you are under that condemnation. You can still be in Christ. And Romans 10 says, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. Again, what will you be saved from? The condemnation for those who are in the flesh, death, and destruction. And if you think you are without sin, I would encourage you to look back at Romans 1 29 through 32 as just one small verse that explains the totality of sin. Or similarly, 1 Corinthians 6 9, Paul says this Or do you not know that the unrighteous, those who are in the flesh, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality shall inherit the kingdom of God. If you are still in your sinful flesh, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will not reap the benefits of what Christ Jesus has done for you. But this is such a a great thing that we as believers can reminisce on, that Christ has saved us from such a condemnation. That though we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, we are free, we are alive, we are at peace with God because of Jesus Christ. So again, cling to your union with Christ. It is of utmost importance. And secondly, we'll look at a union with the triune God in verses 9 through 11. Let's look at this again. You, however, Christian brother and sister in Christ, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul is really highlighting the fact that you can't have two masters in this life. You can't have a a master who you serve under the dominion of sin and a master who you serve under the dominion of the Holy Spirit. You, You have to choose between one or the other. You can't serve sin all your life and still serve the Spirit. You can't serve the Spirit but then fall back into the ways of the flesh, which is death. You can't be in Adam and in Christ at the same time. They they don't mash together. So you are either under the dominion of sin, which is death, or you are under the dominion of life, which is found in Christ Jesus alone. And this passage immensely shows us the Trinity, that God is, is three persons in one. We have Constantly the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. We have Christ. We have he who sent his own son. We have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all working together for our salvation. Now, there was a time where God dwelled among his own people in different ways. Throughout the Old Testament, he dwelled in a tabernacle. <clears throat> he dwelt through various mediators, such as the judges, the prophets, the kings. He dwelt in the physical temple that Solomon built. And in the Gospels, we have God Himself dwelling among his people through Jesus Christ. Remember John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us it literally means he he tabernacled among us just as in the old testament god dwelled with his people so also in the gospels jesus dwelled amongst his own people and then as promised by christ in john 14 through 16 he says i'm no longer going to dwell with you but i'm going to send something even better I'm going to send the counselor, the comforter. I'm going to send my spirit to now tabernacle with you, to dwell with you. And this spirit, the spirit of Christ, is not only going to be the means by which Jesus seals us to himself, but is also going to testify of the very truths that Jesus Christ is our great High priest, that he's our mediator. The Father is the one who sends his Son. The Son is the one who accomplishes redemption on our behalf. And the Spirit then comes, dwells inside of you, and applies the work of Christ on his behalf. Again in verse 11 Paul explains this unity between the spirit and with Jesus Christ the Spirit of God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives inside of you he dwells in you he himself is with you and because of that you are united with God. This is why Paul so beautifully exclaims in Galatians 2:20 "I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live." But Christ, who lives in me, through the Spirit, in the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. This passage is, is a strong reminder of our assurance as Christians that God the Father sent His Son who applies the work of redemption to us. He has sealed us. He has approved us. He has stamped us so that we know we are in Christ forever. We no longer live in sin to sin the weakness of the physical body. The mortality of our body, the reason why we die physically, is because of sin. But if we are in Christ, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when we put on the imperishable body, that this mortal body also puts on the immortal. And that's why we can exclaim, death is swallowed up in victory. Death no longer has its sting. Christ Jesus was raised again from the dead, and we too will be raised again in newness of life in Christ Jesus. And as we continue through Romans chapter 8, we will see just how powerful God's salvation is in looking at the golden chain of redemption. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Provided we suffer in him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul comes full circle here, and this passage really kind of summarizes what Paul was getting at. That if we live by the Spirit, meaning we are justified by faith alone and have his Spirit in us, we will continue to grow. In our own sanctification. We'll continue to grow in our love for the Lord our God. This is why Paul says that we are debtors. We are indebted to the one who saved us. We are not debtors to the flesh. We don't owe the flesh anything because the flesh has brought us even closer to death. But we all we owe all things, life and soul, mind, and body to God, our Savior. Romans itself is full of, of so much doctrine. Many, many theologians all throughout the ages will testify to their converting because of the book of Romans. And, and as much as I love theology, I think one of my favorite concepts is found in here, and that is adoption, being adopted, being co-heirs with Christ and what that means. Our shorter catechism, question 34, asks, what is adoption? It says, adoption is an act of God's free grace. It's grace driven. It's not anything because we have done, but it's all because of grace, whereby we are received into the number and have all the rights and privileges of the sons of God. You have all the rights and privileges of a son of God. Now, sonship isn't excluding women. It has nothing to do with male or female, whether you are a son or a daughter, but it has to do with heirs, being an heir to a fortune. If you remember your Old Testament, the firstborn was always given the father's inheritance. And so because you are a son, it's not because all of a sudden everyone who's a Christian is a male, but it's positional. You now have earned, because of what Christ has done, you have now earned the right to all the firstborn inheritance. All Christians worldwide are sons. They have been granted that great privilege. And like anyone who has adopted or who has adopted, the person being adopted is completely passive in the process. They aren't going out and seeking a family member to be a part of. They are waiting, they are longing, they are hoping for someone to adopt them. And the future parent of an adopted child doesn't go through the child's resume and say, well, this person seems like they'll probably end up uh, being important in the future or a doctor or a lawyer, so I'm going to adopt them based on that. Those who have adopted children adopt based out of their love. And in the same way, God himself has adopted us based out of his own love because of what Christ Jesus has done on our behalf. And if you have that spirit of adoption, then you have the spirit of Christ as well. The spirit is like a seal, like a stamp. Back in Roman times, whenever the king would release a decree to his people, the king himself would take his own signet ring from his hand. He would pour wax onto the envelope and he would stamp his finger onto the envelope That way, when the person opened this letter, they would see that this message came from the king himself. It couldn't be a forgery. It came from the king. And so also your adoption is sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's ring that stamps into your body that you are always his because the king himself has declared it so. And Paul says there is there is far more freedom in Christ Jesus than there is in slavery to the flesh. Although it seems like sinning might be the right answer at times, it is so restrictive. It is so condemning. You are a slave to sin, but you are so much freer in Christ Jesus. You are more free in Christ than you are in the flesh. And because of that, we have the special privilege of calling God, God himself, the creator of heavens and earth, the one who created all things, you can call Father. A very dear, a very personal, a very special name to call somebody. And so here in this passage, Paul is Combining, and I believe it's because he always uses this to the Jew first and also to the Greek, he's using Abba, which is an Aramaic word for father, and also the Greek word for father in the same sentence to really emphasize to the Jews that, yes, you can call God father. Ab is father in, in Aramaic. The "a" uh sound is the definite article the. You can call God the father, but also Greeks, you also can call God the Father. Only Christians can call God their Father. As Jesus shows us in the Lord's Prayer, why it starts with our Father. It is a, it is a right, it is a privilege that we are gifted to call God our Father. And not only are we adopted, but we are heirs as well, this great inheritance that God has for us, that Christ himself has earned. If you are adopted, you have that same inheritance at your disposal. There's so many benefits to being adopted. You receive justification, you receive righteousness, you receive your sanctification. And when you die and take off the mortal flesh, you will be glorified just as Christ is glorified. This is the most beautiful inheritance you could ever imagine. No amount of money or gifts or privileges on this earth compare to the inheritance you will be given in Christ Jesus. And so why, Paul is almost asking, why would you blow away and squander that inheritance for more sinful flesh, temporal desires? Lest we become like the prodigal son in Luke 15 and take our inheritance and squander it away for temporal things. Hold and cling to your union with Christ. You have a far greater inheritance than money could ever buy you in a million lifetimes. The cross is far more glorious than I think we ever realize. There's nothing earned on the cross. There's nothing we could buy to get ourselves to the cross. It is solely based on grace alone that God has redeemed us. And we receive it by faith. The Holy Spirit who indwells inside of us Reminds us of these things. He helps us to conform to Christ's image. And so, what is Paul telling us? He said, He's not saying just hold to this abstract theological concept and don't tell anybody about it. But take your inheritance that you've been gifted, that you have been granted, and tell others about what Christ will do for them if they repent and believe in this glorious message that Christ Jesus came and died for sinners of whom we are the chief most. And with that, let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are absolute debtors to you. There is no amount of knowledge or insight or reading or studying that could help us to grasp just how much you love your people. You love people so much that even though we hated you, even though we broke your law, you still sent your son, your only son, to die for our sins on our behalf. Father, let us always cherish this great truth. Let us never grow too old to forget it. Let us never grow too studied to neglect it. Let us cherish all that Jesus Christ has done for us from this day until our last. In Jesus' name, amen.